0: Uh, so we've been and Matthew the last little while and we've been talking about Matthew and you, you, you start in Matthew and you begin to go through it and you see the story of Jesus and you and you I kind of always uh, catch myself and, you know we say we, we see the story of Jesus often when we say I'm going to tell you a story, we think what that it's just that it's a story, something made up, but a story doesn't always have to be made up, right So to tell you the story of someone's life, to tell you the story of Jesus is to tell a story of someone who lived, someone who who ministered, someone who gathered unto himself, uh, these disciples, this following, those, those who understood and saw, those who followed him simply to test him, those who followed him to try to prove that he was wrong over and over again and failed over and over again. But we get to see the humanity of Jesus. We get to see all that he did and accomplished, the purpose behind it, why he did it, all of the things that God wanted us to have this knowledge of of Jesus' life, we get to read through that and see all of that throughout the Gospels. Now, did Jesus accomplish much more? Yeah, certainly he did. There's more, too, in his life than what we see even in the Gospels. But what we have, given to us by the Spirit, we have for a purpose to understand and know that our God loves us. That our God loves us. (laughs) If you to ask, um, what is the absolute foundational thinking in Scripture? We'd probably come up with a variety of answers. On what is absolutely the foundation of God's Word? we you know, probably say, well, you know, this is important or that is important. And, and eventually we get to hear, and this is, this is important. But from the very beginning, and all through the, the passages of Scripture we can read... It is absolutely foundational for us who are created by God to know that our God loves us. Think on it for a second. The realization of love that is overwhelming from God. We sang a song earlier that talked about our worth, whether we are, we are worthy of the nails that pierced his hand? Are, are, are we worthy of that love? Do we deserve that love? Do we look on ourselves and say, well, this is obviously that God loves me because I'm so lovable? Well, we may at times, but the reality is no. Our God loves us when we were his enemies. Our God loved us when we were sinners. Our God loved us all through the course of our life, through the history of our life, God will love us all the way through eternity. He loved us enough to send his son to this world to live as, a, as an infant, as a child, growing up into adulthood, into a man who, who ministered into this world, who, who brought people out of their sin and directed them back toward God. Our God loved us through all of that. He loved the world at the time of Noah, even though it grieved him that their actions, to the point where, where he says it'd be better off just to just get rid of them all. Because he, he desired for them to be good. He desired for, for them to understand and know his, his love. Does our God love us still? As we continue on in Matthew, and we go through Matthew, we get to this point now where we're in, in Matthew chapter 27. And we see... Those who are the religious leaders, the the Sanhedrin, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the, you know the scribes, the teachers of the law, all of them, that that had this stake in continuing and holding on to power within uh, the brethren, power within the the people, the Jewish nation, holding on to their their place in all of that, and they all kind of seemingly had a stake in that, and so we get to see now as they as they bring Jesus before Pilate, and it says that they have to. Convince the crowds or they sway the crowd to begin to turn on Jesus, who Pilate recognizes to be righteous, who Pilate recognizes to be without sin as they've accused him to be, and yet the crowds begin to turn. And it's always uh, found it interesting because they begin to desire for Barabbas to be released to them. You find it interesting that there's this custom where once a year he'll release someone who is. Uh, a convicted criminal, back into the, into the populace. If our government did that now, we'd probably have uh, some issues with that. And yet here they are releasing a notorious criminal, someone who is well known as, as being such, back into the population, and they're, they're crying out for the release of Barabbas. And in order for that to happen, in order for that to take place... They have to yell at the same time that they desire for Jesus, who is the Christ, to be crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. There are moments in in the history of man. There are moments where uh, you, you look and say, it must have been difficult for God to continue in this action and course of love that he has set forth from the beginning." And the wound that this must have given to Jesus as he stands there and listens to this crowd yell, crucify him, crucify him. And he's, he's attempting to save them. And he knows what he has to do. But here they are yelling out of what can only be observed as, as ignorance, yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and asking for Barabbas to be released. And it goes beyond that. You know, We read it in, in Matthew chapter 27 that was just read for us. And I want to I pick out a verse here. So go back into verse 25. Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. Well, we'll start a little bit earlier because it gives it some context. At verse 24, when Jesus saw that he was getting no, or Pilate saw that he was going nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Now, Pilate does that as a physical act of showing that I, I am cleansing myself of this. This is on you. I no longer want to be part of this. I understand and know that he is He is innocent. And then verse 25 comes along and says, All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. How many times have you read this account in Matthew? More than once, I will assume. Now, you've read through this and you've seen this. How many times has this verse popped out at you as absolutely astounding? That they would stand there before the Messiah, before the Christ before the one that they had longed for for generation upon generation, that God had told them is coming to set up this kingdom that would never end. And they stand there before Pilate, this Roman leader that they wish was overthrown, and their actual king, their actual Messiah, and said, his blood is on our hands, and they're not talking about the Roman. Think about that. They're talking about their Messiah. They're talking about the one they had been waiting about. They're talking about Jesus, that they're accepting onto their heads His blood, and not only on theirs, but on their children as well. For generation after generation, his blood will be on us. Don't worry, we'll we'll take responsibility for this as Pilate washes his hands of it. And says, no more, This this isn't on me. Pilate who had, think about it, Pilate who had really no stake in it, except for his own career. Why does he relent and give in to them? Because the crowd gets loud enough, right? Because he has no real stake in, in the Messiah. He's, he's not looking at it just from a point of a Christian perspective, looking back and saying, no, no, we can't do this. We can't do this from to Jesus. He wants to keep his job, and he wants to keep peace with the people. But even, but even he can't bring himself to go through with that. Because he understands the absolute travesty that it is and what's happening. And so he washes his hands of it, and he's got no stake in it. The ones who actually do are the ones that say, On us will be his blood, and on our children as well. Do you think they had any idea what they were claiming, or what they were taking on for themselves? The context of it as this eternal blood of no, they didn't. They didn't have any idea. And in my opinion, they, they look at this and they've been persuaded as such, and they think maybe they're doing it, and it's going to be okay. But and ultimately, it is the plan of God, but not in the manner of them acting this way. His blood is on us, and it, it's amazing to think what they had done. God sent his son. God sent his son because he loves us. He asks us every week to remind ourselves of this. To remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. We did that. We did that this morning already. And I've often wondered as I often sit in the front or stand at the back, I I often wonder how connected we are to the reality of that. And I, and I don't ever want to, to doubt that, but I, I, I often wonder how connected we are to the reality of what we're doing and what's taking place and what the reminder actually is about Jesus and his blood and his body. You know, even in the, in the very early times of the church, there was confusion uh, within the people around the church looking at this, the observance of that the church was doing. And often there was, there was confusion about what, what was going on. Often the church would meet at kind of weird hours because they, they couldn't just, you know, take a day off and go, or they'd have to, they'd have to work or they'd have other things. And so they would meet at kind of weird hours and people were like, what are you doing? Oh, we're meeting to, you know, partake of the blood and body of our, our Lord Jesus Christ. And people were like, well, that sounds absolutely insane. Uh, You're meeting in, in the dark to eat of someone's body and drink their blood. And that seems like a kind of a weird thing and so now even as you probably in today's age if you just said it there and stopped and didn't explain what you're doing people also would think that we we're uh, doing something weird but it's a reminder a remembrance. so there's always this confusion in the world and, and i wonder if if we also have allowed that in any way to take form in the church that why did jesus hang on the cross Is it so that we would be able to sit here and have some bread and some juice and, 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 you know, this would be wonderful and great and it's a reminder? The reminder is because of the purpose. The reminder itself is not the purpose. The reminder is to bring us back to the actual purpose of the cross. Because we could invite people in every Sunday. We could come in, we could give them a cracker and we could give them some juice and tell them nothing about it. And would they be then connected to the purpose of what Jesus did on the cross? Well, the reality of that is is no, right? No. There is more to it. Now, the purpose of, of what we do is crucial in understanding what Christ did on the cross. He came for the sins of mankind, for the sins of the world. At the time... Before and after the cross. For the sins of mankind. This was a sacrifice once and for all. There's no sacrifice needed beyond that. We do not need to look or long for another Messiah that comes. We do not need to add into this. What this remembrance is. We don't need to add to it or take away from it. But we better be connected to what it actually is. And, and I I often, in in my own self, wonder. And There's reasons why it tells us to make sure that we're in a a good place when we're doing that because we need to be connected to what Christ has done. We get so caught up in the the world. We get caught, caught up in so many things that we can get distracted. Very, very easily distracted. We bring those distractions in with us. So if you're having if you're having people over later, or if you have a busy day tomorrow, or you know that work's gonna be tough this week or the last week was was tough or you're having issues with with kids or grandkids or family or friends and all of that, it's hard to just say, Well, we're gonna come, we're gonna leave that outside, and we're gonna come in here, and we're gonna we're gonna be reminded of, of what Christ has done. But that that's the call is to bring all of that in and understand that God is actually working with us in all of that. That we don't separate ourselves from our lives and then have our moment of Christianity and then go back to our life. But we come in and we we turn all that over to God. And we understand that for all the things that we're a part of, all the things that we had done, that we allow ourselves to come to God and know that He sent His Son... You die for those sins, that this body and this blood was broken and shed so that we could have life. And they asked for his blood to be on them. And we desire for the same, maybe in different context. But we desire for the same, do we not? For the blood of Jesus to wash us clean. I often wonder why we are the way we are. And there's uh, the the grand debate of nature versus nurture. Are, Are we the way we are because our parents did what they did to us? Or are we the way we are because we were born that way? Well, that's an interesting question. Probably will take longer to discuss that than we have. There's probably more to it than that that goes into it. It's probably some of, of both. It's interesting because, you know, I, I, I look at some of the things that my mother used to say, some of her little catchphrases in just different times of life, and I used to shake my head and go, oh, my, I cannot believe that you say these things. And then something will happen, and two shakes of a lamb's tail will come out of my mouth. And I'll be like, oh, no, what have I, what have I become because it's something she used to say. Well, how long is that gonna take? Well, two shakes of a lamb's tail. How long is that? I don't know, but that's what she would say. And I find myself saying that we, we learn, we grow, we are we are who we are, but why? Why is man the way it is? Why why do we choose and desire the things we do? Why why do we falter? Why do we make mistakes? Why did they stand here and yell, crucify him? Why were they persuaded to yell, crucify? Against an innocent man, against a righteous man, against their Messiah? Why did the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes of the Jesus, why did they all turn against Jesus? Why did they not recognize in Him the Messiah? Why do we sin? Why, why do we make mistakes? Why do we, why do we falter? Why, why do we harbor those things in our hearts? Why do we say a- things out of anger? Why do we lose our patience? Why, why do we do all the things that we do? And there's a, it's interesting, you look, at, you look at Scripture, and the Scripture talks about this, this call of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, this, this spiritual nature that we have, and it also talks about the, the human nature, the physical side that we have, and that they're at war with one another, that they battle against one another. And I think we recognize in that the truth of, of life, don't we? That there is this, this war, this battle that is being waged. Of which holds more value to us? I. It was on Facebook the other day, and there's a, a, a quote that had something kind of to do with this, and you probably all heard it. I don't even know who posted it. But it was talking about this, this two sides that are at war. And the person was describing it like uh, uh, two wolves battling it out for supremacy. And the person says, well, which wolf wins? How do we know which side is going to win? And the other person, in trying to display some wisdom, said to them, well, the one that you feed is going to be the one that wins. Do we come to our God in humility and do we come to him and know that it's for our sins that he died? Do we come to him and repent of those things? Do we come to him with, again with humility desiring to be saved? Do we know that because of us that he went to the cross? Do we recognize what we're doing here? Why we're here? What it actually is that we're remembering? And why we're here doing it. Why, why it's important for us to, to continue to meet together and encourage one another and pick each other up and help each other because this is all true. This is us. And we don't overlook sin and say, well, then sin's okay. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that we, we need to come out of that and we need to build off of that and we need to come into what is life and understand that this is why we're called to be together. I would like to tell you that if I was in that crowd, I would have abstained from yelling "Crucified." That I would have turned around and walked away and said, "Nope, not me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go stand with my Savior. As they should have. And forced someone else to yell crucify. Forced someone else to do it. We all like to think that about ourselves Probably. Do you think they were any different? Do you think they yelled "Crucify him! Crucify him!" thinking, "Oh man, this is really wrong. We probably shouldn't be doing this. In fact, this is the worst thing that I've ever going to do in my entire life. But I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do it." Do you think that's what's going through their minds they, as they yell over and over and over again as they desire for Barabbas, this notorious criminal, to be free? Do you think they may be recognized later? Do you think there are some that recognize later? Well, we know that there are many who recognized later who Jesus was, what he did, their part in it, and they were cut to the heart, and they, they cry out to Peter, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? This has already happened. It's our, what do we do with this? We can't take that back. We already did this. What do we do now? And Peter tells them what? It's over for you. Too bad. If that was the truth, would he have preached to them in the first place? They re- come to that conclusion. They come to that understanding. He says, repent and be baptized For the forgiveness of your sins. This is what we're doing here. This is what we remember. This is why we have the Scripture to open it up and understand that we too can come back to God and have His blood on us. Again, in different contexts, but have His blood on us. Because we have sinned and God has forgiven. We have made mistakes and we are like this in mankind. And God has loved us and continues to love us. To the point where Jesus is willing to go even beyond this and suffer in our place. You continue on in Matthew where we were reading, Matthew chapter 27, if you continued on uh, through the rest of Matthew chapter 27, you get to see this suffering. You get to see what Jesus was willing to do for us. It says that Jesus was mocked. And we know that the soldiers... Yeah, they, they took him and they stripped him of the clothes and they put on this purple robe on him and they gave him a stab and they put on this, this crown of thorns and they begin to bow down and they begin to mock him and spit on him. They took that thing and they, they beat him across the head again and again. Jesus, who is the very Son of God, Was mocked for wanting to save mankind. For wanting to do the will of God. For for taking our place. Think on that. I mean, give that some actual thought of what God was willing to do, what Christ was willing to do in our place beyond that he was crucified there is uh, probably in in all all men or most uh men uh, a vein that of thinking that makes them think that they are tougher than they are, maybe not all of us, maybe some of you are tougher than you actually think you are, and that 's a credit to you, but uh, probably in most of us there 's this vein that thinks if if there was ever a need i 'd be the first one there i 'd be able to you know lift that heavy object off someone or i 'd be able to do this or i 'd be able to do that, or if I was sometimes guys are crazy, and if you haven 't figured that out, then you uh, because, you know, we will watch, you know, MMA or something or some kind of, oh, I could do that if I had trained. No. We probably, probably couldn't. Uh, but we like to think that. There's you know, this vein that, that allows us to think that we're, we're stronger than we are. And then, then you stub your toe. Or you get a minor cold. And just everything falls apart. Because if you ever stubbed your toe, What happens? I mean, are you actually hurt? I mean, now you, you can stub your toe to the point where you actually break your foot. Okay, so then you're actually hurt. I apologize for using that analogy. But if you stub your toe and it's just a minor stubbing of the toe, what do you do? Is it actually pain? I mean, there's pain for how long? And then it, But at the time, it feels like it's the worst thing ever. Have you ever gotten a splinter? I mean, it's... you. No, I don't want to make myself... Less manly, but uh, you get you get a splinter, and sometimes it's so painful you don't know what you're going to do. And then you go to look for it, and you can't even find it because it's so small. And you think to yourself, "Oh man, that kind of wish I hadn't made such a big deal of this now, because it's and yet there's that pain. Can't even begin to imagine what it is to hang on a cross then." in agony, in pain, having been beaten over the head again and again and again, carried, forced to carry that, that cross for, for a distance and then taken and, and, and spread it out so that you're, you're crucified with, with the nails through your arms, through your feet, with no, no end in sight except for death. And the pain of having the, the entire weight of your body Pulling on those wounds. Think about that. You know, the average guy, 100 and 180 pounds, something like that. Pulling on the wounds of a nails through your, through your feet. And one of the, one of the devastating things that I, I've ever heard in this, describing this is that the weakness of, of loss of blood... And the positioning of it, you'd begin to slump down. And so you'd be hanging and your body would actually begin to slump down to the point where you would no longer be able to catch your breath. And just naturally, your body desires oxygen, obviously. And so you would desire to breathe and you'd be fighting to get a breath. And the only way to get a breath is then to pull up on the wounds that you already have. To push up on the wounds of your feet or to pull up on the wounds of your hand. Just simply to catch a breath, to be able to speak, to be able to to continue on in in life. And so you'd you'd be literally pulling against your own wounds to just survive. As your body begins to weaken. And the pain of it. Because you can have have a a little bit of pain, and if you don't think about it, you know that little sliver of the pain kind of will dull or go away. But every time you push on it, you're reminded of that again. So every breath you begin to pull on your own wounds. Christ hung there, not, not because he was guilty of anything, not because he said, oh, well, let's just go this direction. Because of us, he desired this because it was the will of God. And it would be a terrible, terrible thing. And sometimes, I, again, I think we often, we want to leave Jesus on the cross because we think of the cross as this, this moment of salvation and and. The cross is, is definitely important, but what happens after the cross? You know, Wayne talked about it. What happens after the cross? I'll give you a hint. What happens after the cross? Jesus gives up his spirit, right? He breathed his last. He chooses this. He goes, and then there's this time of, of burial where he's, he's bur- buried in a borrowed tomb. The stone is rolled over and sealed. There's all these, these the soldiers, a contingent of soldiers there guarding the tomb so that no one could come and steal the body of Jesus. And what takes place over that time? What's taking place as we think about this, the crucifixion, his, his death, his burial? What's taking place there? Well, what was the purpose to start with of the cross is it simply so that jesus could die a visible painful death but on the cross what does he do he takes on our sin and our death and how all of that works it comes to fruition where he comes and he's risen he is alive why because he has conquered sin and he has conquered death this is what's taking place at the cross he goes and is a sacrifice on our behalf, so He hangs there in our stead because the wages of sin is death. He gives up His spirit. He goes unto death, taking on our sin, our death, so that He can battle against that and win a victory over sin, win a victory over death, so that we can be connected to Him. But our God, He is alive. Christ is alive. He is not dead. And so if we only think of Christ on the cross, or as a figure who has died, then we do not give him the credit of what he has actually done. He has gained a victory over death. For us. So that when we bring our sins to him, when we come to him, and we repent, as Peter calls them to, calls us to, that we can be connected, we can be joint heirs with Jesus. We can be ingrafted branches. It is a wonder, is it not? It is an absolute wonder that we can be joint heirs with Jesus. Let's go back to the beginning. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. Who is God, who is with God through all things he created were because of him and through him. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is humble. Jesus is kind and loving and compassionate. And Jesus goes and sacrifices himself for the sins of mankind. And who are we in the scope of that? Well, we are enemies and sinners. We are often wrong, mistaken, We have the capacity for, obviously, great good. I don't want to overlook that. We do have kindness and compassion and love and all of those things. But it proves over and over and over again how amazing what Christ did on the cross actually was. Because it can wash us as white as snow because of what he did. Turn over into Matthew. Matthew. And we see this as it was displayed for us already in Matthew chapter 28, the first 15 uh, verses. They go and they, they begin to look for Jesus. They go and begin to look for him. And it, it, I want to I think about this. So as, as Wayne mentioned before, there are uh, those that would say, okay, they're mistaken or this or that or all these other things. And yet there were guards at the tomb. Why? Why are there guards at the tomb? If you remember, I mean, Scripture tells us why there are guards at the tomb. There are guards at the tomb because the the religious leaders go to Pilate and say, we remember that when Jesus lived, he said that he was going to rise again on the third day. And so we want to make sure that his disciples don't come and steal his body. So we're going to put guards at the tomb. Is that all right? Yep, go ahead. Let's put all these guards at the tomb. So then after, the claim is what? Remember the, the lie? What's the lie that they spread? And people still kind of believe to this day it says. The lie is what? That his disciples came and stole his, stole his body. Okay, but there were guards at the tomb for that express purpose. Now these are trained soldiers. These aren't just you know, guys sitting around at, with flashlights hoping to catch someone doing something bad. These are trained soldiers guarding the tomb. Do you think uh, Mary Magdalene is going to come and overpower all of these trained soldiers and steal the body of Jesus? That her and the, and the women that, that come to the tomb are, are, going to, are going to be able to then roll back the stone, overpower the guards, steal Jesus' body, and overpower the guards in such a way that all of them are laying on the ground like dead men but not a scratch on them is there another alternative to that because you know sometimes you could try to come up with a a reasoning for something that sounds uh, like it's a sound argument until you kind of think it through Well, obviously his disciples came and stole the body and and this and that. Okay, but there is all of these guards at the tomb. What makes more sense? That all of these guards were overpowered by by these few women that came to to see his body? Or even the 12 disciples? Or or you think of a contingent of soldiers being in the hundreds. how, How many guys would that take to overthrow a group of soldiers? Without anyone knowing that it happened. Without anybody hearing it or any other thing that, that people would say, well, did you hear the battle last night or in, around the tombs? No. Well, what else could have happened? Well, there's an explanation, right? Let's go into Matthew chapter 28. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. I want to focus on those two things. He is risen, and he is not here. He is is not here. He is risen. Why do you look for the dead, or look for the living amongst the dead? He's alive. And the point of us understanding that is, the the part we didn't put up here, but we read for it. The third part of that sentence says what? He is not here. He has risen. What else? What does it say there at the end? Just as he said. That's why the guards were there, right? Because he said this was going to happen. He has risen. Our God, he he is alive. He is the giver and sustainer of, of life. The wages of sin is death. Always death. And we may not like the reality of that. We may not like the message that that kind of portrays. But the wages of sin is death. It's always death. Because it is a missing of the mark. It is a, is it a betrayal of, of God. And so God who is the, the giver and sustainer of life. Who is Life, when we miss the mark of life, you end up away from life. And that obviously leads, if you can follow the equation, it leads then into death. And that's why the wages of sin is death. That's why Christ went and died in our place. That's why He battled and conquered sin and death. So that we could live. And it's because He lives that we can have life. It's only because we're connected to him, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, that we are connected now to his life so that we, too, can have life. It's a, something I hope we don't ever, ever forget. That that's what we're doing. That's who we really are. That, that's the, the thrust of God's word. It's to bring us back to that bring us to an understanding of that so that we understand the devastation of sin because it put Christ on the cross leads us away from God and we also understand the wonder of grace because it's not worked for and it's not earned it's freely given and can wash us clean of those things but it came at a great price and a great cost But through that price and through that cost, we can be joint heirs with Jesus and spend an eternity with our God. Let's go ahead and and close this morning by by continuing to read in Matthew. And I want to read the last uh, little bit of Matthew chapter 28, the last little bit of Matthew in general, I guess. But Matthew uh, 28, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go.